Good morning, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. The studio is in the inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Today is the 16th day of August 2022, which actually makes that a Tuesday, which is all significance because Tuesday afternoons tend to be some of the nicest afternoons one can uh, experience. At least that's been my experience. Now, hopefully this morning leading into your afternoon, or maybe it already is Tuesday afternoon where you are, will be um, an enhancement of your knowledge base in membrane biochemistry. Because this is membrane biochemistry lecture number, oh my gosh, 35. And we're still talking about nociception and the fear response. But we're broadening it out now to a discussion of the membrane-associated activities of not just neuropeptides and neurotransmitters, but also other pathophysiological disorders and the use sometimes of prophylactic glucocorticoids. And that's what we covered just yesterday. So we might do a little bit more of that, but um, let's get into it. Now, let me just give you this synoptic narrative on pain. Because remember, pain is associated with the fear index. So the same signaling that comes from the sensoria that goes into the limbic system, which is accumulating an aggregation of neural stimuli that result in what are known as classical fear responses that can be dampened by neuropeptides and then, of course, reactivated by different neuropeptides from such subcortical um, nuclei as the hypothalamus and the amygdala with a major component too of the um, ventrotegmental area. There are other components like the BNDST, the lateral portion of that, which we are probably going to re-discuss uh, right now. So pain-associated nociceptors contain both small myelinated A-delta fibers and smaller still unmyelinated C-fibers. And that's where pain stimuli are routed through the dorsal root ganglion with axons leading directly to the spinothalamic tract and the trigeminal ganglions. Now, each of those tracts ascend via neural branching into the periaqueductal gray and then the greater limbic system, including the amygdala. So contemporary in vivo imaging techniques gives us some indication about what brain areas are responsive to pain in humans. So most of the studies were done, of course, in rodent models, but now with imaging, we can look at uh, pain responses in humans. So the brain can exert a descending control over pain. Specifically, there's an activation of midbrain in medullary areas that reduce nociception. And in particular, the paraaqueductal gray receives inputs from other brain regions 
and will exert a profound analgesic effect. Additionally, the rostroventral medial medulla, or the RVM, can inhibit nociceptive information, and it might play a role in the control of the descending pain process. So together, the periectical gray and the RVM, that's the rostroventral medial medulla, provide a means of influencing pain and nociception. And that's going to be mediated via input also from the cortical and subcortical areas, which enables the PAG and the RVM to diminish intensity. <coughs> now, in terms of proteins, the ligand voltage-gated ion channels, such as the transient receptor potentials, underlie the detection of mechanical and chemical stimuli pain via nociceptor activation. So these trip channels, transient receptor potential channels, control a variety of sensations, including sensing temperature and of course, mechanical and painful stimuli. There are a number of trip channels. We've already talked about these but there's such things as trip V1, 2, 3, 4. Then there's trip M8, trip A1. And those are all expressed. All of these voltage-gated channels are expressed or nested within nociceptors. So the trip channels are an essential first step for pain perception because they will transduce noxious stimuli into an electrical current. The superfamily of these transient receptor potential ion channels consists of over 28 distinct genes in mammals. They're grouped into six subfamilies, and that's pretty much just with, uh, by using sequence homology. So you have the <coughs> canonical trip channels, those are the trip Cs, canonical, right? You have the vanilloid, or trip Vs. You have the melastatins, trip M's, mucolipins, trip ML's, and the polycystins, trip PP's. And you also have the anchorin repeat trip channels, which we've talked about, like trip A. Again, these are all described as cation permeable channels that function as cellular sensors responding to stimuli of a broad range, not just pain. Now, the anti-inflammatory process mediated by glucocorticoids or corticosteroids is multimodal, and it begins with the synthesis of a peptide from the pro-opiomelanocortin polyprotein. And this peptide is lipocortin-1. Lipocortin-1 suppresses the activity of phospholipase A2. The phospholipase A2 removes the fatty acid from the two position of phospholipids, such as phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylafenolamine, phosphatidylserine, phosphatidylglycerol, as well as phosphatidylinositol. So you remove that fatty acid, and that fatty acid then is acted upon um, by 
cyclooxygenases, lipoxygenases, or P450 monooxygenases. And then we generate this whole series of what are known as icosanoids. So icosa means 20. So primarily these fatty acids in the two position that are being removed by PLA2 are fatty acids that have 20 carbons. And they can be either omega-6 or omega-3 in terms of where the positions are of the double bonds proximal to the methyl terminus of the fatty acid. So major class of icosanoids come from arachidonic acid, which is the omega-6, 20 colon 4. And then another class of icosanoids come from icosapentanoic or docosahexanoic acid, which are C20 colon 5 or C22 colon 6, respectively, of the omega-3 positional um, isomers. Okay? So you're going to generate all of these particularly potent icosanoids that function on the level of regulating pain perception. And the end result is you, um, if you suppress phospholipase A2 with glucocorticoids, you're going to suppress the production of icosanoids, which will then suppress the inhibition of various leukocyte inflammatory events. Okay. So the end result of glucocorticoid secretion is an inhibition of prostaglandin synthesis. That's one type of uh, icosanoid. And it works through inhibition of the cyclooxygenase COX-1 and COX-2. Thus, it, it, so not only does, does the glucocorticoids um, suppress phospholipase A2 activity, they also work then downstream effectively to diminish the activity of COX-1 and 2. And all of this will lead to an anti-nociception and anti-inflammatory effect because icosanoids will also trigger in leukocytes and lymphocytes the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Yeah. It's a cascade event that ultimately leads to the immune responses. Okay. Now, remember, <laughs> we talked about the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis. So I want to remind you of this. This is a complex limbic forebrain structure. It's significant in controlling the autonomic neuroendocrine and the behavioral responses of uh, essentially pain and fear association. So the BNST is a key relay connecting the limbic forebrain structures to the hypothalamic arch and brainstem regions, which are indeed now directly linked to the autonomic and the neuroendocrine structural functional domains. Now, I control the physiological and behavioral activity. The BNST mediates a local action on numerous neurotransmitters. So BNST is going to control then indirectly via neuroendocrine function, cardiovascular, and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis activities, both at rest and during physiological challenge, which includes 
stress and physical exercise and or physical damage. Okay. So the corticotropin releasing factor receptors modulate oxytocin release. And the role of that modulation is in the regulation of fear and anxiety. Now in the BNST, which we just talked about, the CRFR, remember it's a corticotropin releasing factor receptor, immunoreactive axons are actually glutamatergic. Whereas the CRFR immunoreactive dendrites are primarily gabinergic. So as BNST dorsolateral neurons, including the CRF neurons, are all primarily gabinergic. This is the dorsolateral. Okay? So you have these corticotropin releasing factor receptors, and they're located on dendrites of local GABA neurons, whereas those glutamatergic CRFR expressing terminals in the BNST are essentially extrinsic in uh, origin. So the BNST projecting hypothalamic oxytocin neurons will express glutamatergic markers and presynaptic corticotropin releasing factor receptor 2 on their excitatory fibers. And it's likely that's what modulates the release of oxytocin or glutamate or both. Hence, you get an orchestrated effort of the CRFR and the oxytocin via oxytocin receptor expressing neurons in the BNST dorsolateral. And that's believed to control or modulate fear and anxiety. Now, the actual source of corticotropin releasing factor in the BNSTDL is actually sort of puzzling. Since its somatodendritic release in the BNSTDL has not been demonstrated, maybe coming from some other sub thalamic nucleus. Now, some of the behavioral effects observed after CRF or indeed urocortin infusion directly into the BNST dorsolateral may be partially a result of changes directly on the extracellular oxytocin content. And perhaps CRF release within the BNSTDL akin to the oxytocin receptor promotes adaptive fear discrimination. So these are all suggestions you find in the literature in the animal uh, models. Now, something about um, glutamatergic and gabinergic. I want you to remember just some simple biochemistry. Glutamate can be converted to alpha-ketoglutarate via the aspartate aminotransferase, which is a transaminase. So glutamate to alpha-KG, which is, of course, a TCA cycle intermediate. Um, 
glutamate will react with oxalacetic acid to make aspartic acid and alpha-KFG. But glutamate can also react with pyruvate and synthesize alpha-ketoglutarate and alanine. So that's the alanine aminotransferase. Glutamate can also be converted to alpha-ketoglutarate via another entirely different enzyme system, which is the branch chain aminotransferase. So it will take a branch chain keto acid and convert it to a branch chain amino acid while taking glutamate to alpha-KG. I'm not finished. Glutamate can also go through the glutamate dehydrogenase reaction, generating just alpha-KG plus NADPH and ammonium with NADP being one of the other substrates. Glutamate and NADP are the substrates for that reaction. <clears throat> glutamate can be synthesized directly from phosphate-activated glutaminase, which will take glutamine and convert it to glutamate plus ammonium. Likewise, glutamate can be used to form glutamine via glutamine synthetase which requires ATP hydrolysis. And very importantly, glutamate can be converted directly to gamma-aminobutyric acid via the glutamate decarboxylase reaction, which releases CO2 and then generates GABA from glutamate. Okay? And there's one more reaction, one more reaction, freely reversible, glutamate to alpha-KG, via the GABA transferase. And in that reaction, succinate semialdehyde is converted to GABA while glutamate is converted to alpha-KG. So keep in mind all these different reactions leading just from glutamate. Many of them freely reversible. All those aminotransferases are freely reversible. And some of them absolutely not freely reversible, like the decarboxylating um, GABA synthesis, right? Or the glutamine synthase, which requires ATP hydrolysis. So there you go. It's just a little basic biochemistry. Now, back to our discussion of CRF infusion. CRF infusion into the BNST has been shown to increase vigilance. And there's a term for that in the neuroscience literature. It's called CRF potentiated startle. Now that CRF infusion requires CRF receptor one activation, but not associated with the amygdala. While a bright light potentiated startle is mediated by CRF receptor one in the BNST, suggesting the involvement of CRF receptor one and sustained anxiety rather than fear. Similarly, intra-BNST administration of corticotropin-releasing factor was shown to produce a dose-dependent anxiety-like behavior. And that is in effect mediated by CRFR1, but not by CRF receptor 2. So whereas CRF 
receptor one activation, the BNS day increases unconditioned vigilance, which I just said, um, as well as anxiety. The CRF receptor two mediates learned behavioral responses. So depending on the receptor, you get different output. I mentioned this way at the beginning of this talk, these talks. So CRF involvement in fear versus anxiety versus anxiety. This is the animal model now. It's all animal model studies. But it, what it indicates is sort of a contrarian dualism such that the engagement of the receptor one for CRF promotes vigilance, sustained anxiety, and contextual fear, but the same time, which is a memory response, but at the same time, the CRF receptor one will inhibit cued fear. Okay, so there seems to be a subdistinction there. And animal models and even humans, oxytocin appears to play the opposite role to CRF because it facilitates cued fear, but reduces any potential contextual fear or anxiety-like behavior. Okay, so just more discrete observations from the animal studies. Now, both oxytocin and CRF emerge as powerful modulators of emotionally significant behavior. And that's why the evidence for the reciprocal signaling, which I just mentioned to you, may be very important to understand how fear and anxiety can be contrarian, but not contradictory. So as if simple release of a neuropeptide and binding to its receptor could ever be the means by which mood and response to complex human experiences is linked in the human system. Obviously it is not, okay? But the animal model, they make these kind of bold statements and they're statements that are basically nothing more than premises, propositions, right? And so then they back up those propositions with evidence and they come to these conclusions. But the evidence is limited to the animal model but even when you look at the evidence, it is not consistent, right? There are always caveats. And one of those caveats could be all those things I just showed you about glutamic acid metabolism. Remember, glutamic acid is involved in all this as well, because you're talking about glutamatergic versus GABAergic signaling, right? Those neurons are distinct, but they're found in that in those same subcortical regions. And they're activated upon the stimulus of the BNST. And even they're linked to oxytocin release. So remember that you have glutamate, glutamine, alpha-ketoglutarate, and GABA, all in constant dynamic flux, depending on the activity of those five or six enzymes I mentioned to you. Many of which are just enzymes involved in intermediary metabolism, which are housekeeping gene products. They're not necessarily induced. So that means the availability of substrate will drive the reaction 
either forward or in the reverse. And I told you many of those reactions, particularly those transaminases, are fairly reversible, depending on the concentration of a substrate amino acids and substrate alpha keto acids. You understand? Okay. So you have the neurotransmitter glutamate, and it's taken up by surrounding astrocytes subsequent to an interaction with receptors in the synapse. So in the astrocyte, glutamate is either converted to glutamine, and remember that enzyme is glutamine synthetase, requires ATP, and that's actually part of the glutamate-glutamine cycle. But likewise, glutamate can be metabolized in the TCA cycle via alpha-ketoglutarate, as we've just been going through. And in fact, glutamine is transferred to the glutamatergic neuron, and it can be also used for glutamate. Remember, that's catalyzed by the phosphate-activated glutaminase, or PAG. So glutamate enters the TCA cycle by the activity of glutamate dehydrogenase or by the amino transferase, a transamination reaction. And that particular carbon then, in the form of alpha-KG, can be completely oxidized uh, by the TCA cycle. Okay. So the, the alpha-ketoglutarate that is generated from the glutamine or the glutamate, or even indeed from GABA, will act anaplerotically in the TCA cycle to build back intermediates in that pathway. And that will enhance the potential for oxidi oxidation of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA and making NADH and FADH2. So the other enzymes that are necessary for the cell process to be functioning are pyruvate dehydrogenase, which makes acetyl-CoA, pyruvate carboxylase, which makes oxaloacetic acid. But you also have citrate synthase and the succinate dehydrogenase, right? So in the astrocyte, you can have lactate um, converted via lactate dehydrogenase to pyruvate. Um, pyruvate to oxaloacetic acid, and that can end the TCA cycle. That's one way of getting it in, and that's reacting with acetyl-CoA, then running it, and then there's alpha-ketoglutarate added to the TCA cycle from glutamic acid. But glutamic acid can also be used to make glutamine, and glutamine can be sent to a glutamatergic neuron where it meets up with the phosphate-activated glutaminase to make glutamate in that neuron, then glutamate can be converted to alpha-KG there, or glutamate can be secreted from the glutamatergic neuron. That's why it's glutamatergic. And that glutamate can be reused by the astrocyte. So glutamate picked up from the uh, neuron, from the glutamatergic neuron, will then either be metabolized to alpha-KG or potentially back to glutamine and then make that and then transfer as glutamine to the gabinergic neuron. So once glutamine is in the gabinergic neuron, phosphate activated glutaminase will make glutamate, again, glutamate converted to alpha-KG or directly to GABA via the decarboxylase. 
And that's how GABA is synthesized for the GABAnergic neurons. Okay? So you've got glutamatergic neurons, astrocytes, and GABAnergic neurons all functioning as a triad of different cellular systems. Okay? And moving around carbon in the form of glutamate, glutamine, or indeed even GABA can be transport, transported. Okay. So see that I'm giving you all that detail so you understand why when you look at these studies that are conducted with, say, using glucocorticoids or using oxytocin or even understanding the receptors for corticotropin releasing factor in the BNST dorsolateral and then relating that again to the glutamatergic and the gabinergic uh, neurons, right? Um, you understand why you can have pleiotropic effects because depending on the poise of the bioenergetics of those cells, via they, they are glutamatergic, gabinergic neurons, they're going to get different readout in the overall induction of a pain stimulus or a fear versus anxiety stimulus or even a neutral effect if glutamate and GABA are simply just metabolizing the TCA cycle for bioenergetic purposes, you understand? Which occurs all the time because the central nervous system requires a great deal of ATP to function. All right, so I'm gonna stop there. Hopefully you enjoyed a little bit of that biochemistry. I mean, real biochemistry, intermediary metabolism. Dr. Dan Guerra on Tuesday, the 16th, of August 2022, saying bye for now.